Welcome back to From Start to Scale with Alex Newman, where founders, CEOs, sales leaders, investors, and the best of the best share their strategies and tactics, how they scaled their business and broke through the next level. Hear what worked and what didn't so you can avoid critical mistakes and scale your business. Now let's get into it. Today's guest is Kyle York, co-founder, CEO, and managing partner at York IE, a strategic growth and investment firm for technology companies. Previously, he was CRO over at Dyn, led the company to $100 million in ARR, a $600 million acquisition by Oracle, where he was the general manager and VP of product strategy of their cloud infrastructure business. He's been featured in the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, TechCrunch. I even saw him on Bloomberg the other day, which is pretty cool. Excited to have you here, Kyle. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Alex. Great to be here. So I'm excited to dive in because you have you have one of my favorite backgrounds. It's it's very very sales heavy, very go to market heavy, and now and now obviously you do what you do now. Where I would love to start is when you joined Dine. Like, what was the org structure? What was kind of the go to market strategy at the time? Like, what did the team look like? What was revenue? That type of thing. Yeah, great. Yeah, I mean, so this was 2008. I was actually living in California. I had moved from my prior startup, which was a vertical software SaaS business. And I moved back home to my home state of New Hampshire. I was recruited by a co-founder CEO of the business who actually was a high school classmate of mine. Hey, would you ever consider moving back to New Hampshire? I'm in San Diego. No, you've got to be kidding me. But I saw that it was an absolutely great opportunity. The business at the time was about 15 folks, you know, mostly all engineers. The actual go-to-market motion at the time was an e-commerce self-serve platform, and it was targeted at actually early stage. They call them prosumers. So like, you know, home user, consumer, tech nerds. Basically what the technology was, Dyn specialized in the domain name system. So they would basically put names to IP addresses. And back then, believe it or not, if you wanted to do remote access back into your house, you know, there wasn't the cloud you could log into. You'd actually remote back to Alex's house.com and <laughs> go to the tower PC under your, under your uh, desk and you'd access your photos or your Kazam music or Napster music or what have you. So that was the beginning phases of the business. And that's the business I joined, but they had this really great concept, really innovative idea that as the cloud became more prevalent and managed hosting and content delivery networks and apps became more global, that actual website operators and companies could use the DNS to name those IP addresses, those cloud instances, those servers behind those websites. And instead of, you know, typing in Twitter doc, you know, an IP address, you type in twitter.com Twitter, yeah. and it would route you to the appropriate servers nearby and optimize traffic flows and things like that. So the whole idea, when I joined, I was recruited, originally I was titled VP of sales and marketing. I was recruited to help build a B2B go-to-market engine. They had just hired two sales reps. And I was told when I was hired, you're probably going to have to fire these guys. You know, we just, like, we put up a, on our website, we talked to local, you know, network, and we got a couple sales reps. I don't know if they're going to figure it out. Um, and the problem was there wasn't all the things we'll talk about today in place for these sellers to be successful. So they were just spraying and praying, trying to get people to take calls. And when you're selling a niche, complicated, you know, technology like the Doesn't DNS, work. pretty, pretty tough if you don't have a really clear strategy. So that's what it was. It was really early. You know, the, the co-founders would always say you're like kind of the co-founder we never had. We never had this sort of go-to-market sales marketing kind of growth you know, business person. And 
you know, but they had figured their way, by the way, in the first seven, eight years of the business to get it to a $3 million revenue business. It was just all self-service to that prosumer right. audience. And they even had like, normally the exact numbers, but at the time they had serviced millions of users on their freemium service. So today this is like PLG and like, you know, community oriented marketing, you know, back then it was just like, kind of like, they were kind of like a nonprofit when they launched and then they were like, oh, let's charge for this. And, you know, it kind of organically grew over those first seven or eight years. And then those next seven or eight years when I joined is when we took it from three to a hundred. And that's the journey that, that I was lucky and fortunate enough to be on with a great team. So you come into this company, they ask you to bail out this B2B arm. You got a, you got two knuckleheads that you're expecting to fire. Yeah. What, what do you Chris do? And Brian, like, who both inter- Chris and Brian, who both interviewed me and who both <laughs> ended up staying another five or six years. It was one of my most prideful things. I was like, hey, how about you judge me based on how successful they are and stop judging these guys for like hiring them with absolutely zero no resources problem. or support or infrastructure. Right. And yeah, pr- proudly. I mean, I, I, geez, I think Brian was there six years longer. Chris was there four or five years longer. So it ended up being a fulfilling thing for me and in great long-term relationships I have with those guys now. Well, so they, I remember like it was yesterday, they had like an offsite right before I was starting full-time. This is their leadership team meeting. Again, mostly all technical people in the room. There might've been a controller and like a, a, a lawyer, you know, their outside counsel was coming inside. And we did this offsite, this breakfast joint in Manchester, New Hampshire, where the company's based. And I remember when it, it ended, they said, what are you doing the rest of the day? And I still had my old sales job. So I had to like grind and close out my quarter and, you know, fill out my pipe, close out my pipeline before I left. Right. And, and I still had to move back from California. <laughs> and I, I was like, well, I guess I got a, a, a little bit more time. Why? They're like, well, maybe you should come by the office. And I remember Lisa Hageman, our VP of engineering at the time said, you're going to let him come to the office. <laughs> right. And it was like this, that was like the culture, right? It was like selling was like voodoo, you know, like tech people don't want to be sold. They want to find great technology, use it and, and, you know, not be sold to, they want to buy it. Right. And, but also the, the, the culture of the business was just so engineering and introverted and, you know, kind of like secure and like captive. They, they feared a guy who talks a lot, you know, who's animated, who's, a little brash coming into the office without setting the context for the company, who the heck I might be would be a big problem. So, so that I always tell that story. Cause it was like, I, I remember saying to Lisa, at least I'm right here. Like you're talking in front of me. You're telling, you're telling everyone I'm not allowed to come to the office. Like you guys better get used to this. Yeah. And so yeah. It was uh, a really interesting, I'd say first year or two of like, you know, earning trust and respect, like, clearly of the technical founders, but also of the engineering teams that were there and, you know, kind of ed- educating them on, you know, why you need to do proactive go-to-market and brand building and demand generation and outbound selling. And and also, I think we did a really good job of, like, how they could help us be successful at that and then celebrating yeah. the wins, right? So I think I think we yeah. ended up earning it, but it was, it was awkward and weird. You know, the first in, many in nights home with my... My wife, I was like, man, this is like an awkward environment. I don't think they like me at all. Yeah, I mean, I could see that you coming in. There's already, you know, there's already a team. There's already, you know, an established culture, and you're coming in as the the founder's buddy from a long time ago. Where it's like, wait a minute, like how much how much leeway is this going to work out? So I, I can see how that works. So when you when you get there, you're teaching them you know, intentional go to market, like proactive outbound, go to market, demand gen, all these different things. Maybe at the time demand gen wasn't a word at the, <laughs> and some of these things didn't exist. 
But when you look at like, how do you get started building this initial B2B kind of motion and, and strategy when the product is really not designed to, to have this kind of motion? You don't have the team set up yet. You, you know, you have two sales guys, but you don't really have the support. You don't have anything else. Like what, what, what did that look like to be able to move forward? Yeah. So, I mean, right away, one of the reasons I, I went to Dime was because I was selling vertical software to the ed education industry. So K to 12 private schools. Okay. And I'd done that for six, seven years and had done it successfully, but I felt like the market was just those 4,200 private schools in the country you could sell. Right. Okay. So when I came yeah. to Dime, I was like, you're trying to tell me anyone with a website can be a client, right? It's a horizontal platform that anybody could use, you know, whether it's you know, the biggest enterprises of the world or obviously these home users, right? So there's a lot of value in that and that you can build a big bottoms up, you know, go to market in a big bottoms up TAM, but there's also a focus issue of how to actually target and scale. So what we did right away, one of the things you obviously need to do if you're, if you're a tech founder or you're building your business is you need that go-to-market leadership. You actually need the strategy set from the top. So I did a lot of asking questions, listening, collaborating, making sure that the go-to-market strategy I wanted to build fit into the founders and the rest of the team's you know, viewpoints on how we should go to market, right? And so we decided we were going to build a pitch and a value prop and repeatable use cases and target vertical industries across you know the most highly trafficked websites in the world right i mean our whole pricing and business model was based on consumption how much traffic do they have they pay us more so we did this really really smart vertical strategy where we picked just like a handful of verticals and we picked a handful of logos in each vertical and we surgically targeted them with a very crisp and consistent message about uptime, reliability, performance, cybersecurity for the end user, right? Because the interesting part about our business model is it was kind of like B2B2B or B2B2C, right? If the website performance stunk, then that brand was not going to have a happy user experience, right? So it was that kind of pass-through value prop that really ended up working. So we picked the core verticals, you know, it was media, it was ad tech, it was social media, it was SaaS, what am I missing? And it was e-commerce. And we just picked players, right? So we won Zappos really early. We won Twitter really early. We won a company called Audience Science and Ad Tech really early. And, you know, we were able to, just by winning those banner accounts of strategic customers, I call it the strategic customer trifecta, right? It's a, it's a logo everyone knows in a space. They pay you, like, legitimately for the service. You're not, like, giving it to them for free. Right. And they see a true business value prop, business yeah. ROI of the service, right? And once we nailed those, it was a FOMO marketing strategy, right? We, yeah. we, we, didn't, we didn't abandon, by the way, every, all the, everyone thought like, oh, the consumer business is dead. It's irrelevant to this B2B play. Guess what? If you were an IT geek at home, you probably were at work, right? So we did a tremendous strategy of reaching out to the community saying, we now have a B2B offering. What do you do for your day job? We ended up finding out that a bunch of the consumer customers were actually people at Twitter using it for Twitter stuff too, right? So, yeah. or, or different companies like that. So, yeah, the bottoms up approach. Really, yeah, real bottoms up approach. Leverage the audience and eyeballs we already have. Very concise messaging, key vertical strategy. Knew the buyer persona in these organizations. Again, it's stuff now that we work with startups every day at York, i.e., my new advisory and investment firm. But like. You know, it, it wasn't as, honestly, there weren't books, there weren't blogs, there weren't podcasts, there wasn't 
like the playbooks to follow back then. So we're just kind of doing it based on what we think will work, iterating yeah. on it. And, you know, ended up, ended up building the business to a hundred million. So, you know, it, yeah, it's really a understanding. Yeah. Well, I would imagine that the, that the kind of the, well, PLG at the time was not really a coin term, but like the entire bottoms up approach ultimately helped because you were able to kind of cherry pick and say, Hey, all these people are actually at Twitter, or, you know, Facebook or, or whatever it is to be able to go up to the top and say, Hey, you got 20 people in your company who are using this. Why don't we talk a little bit more intentionally about what does it look like for the company? Yeah. I talk to startups all the time now who are like open sourced or have built like a community community media platform and a SaaS business to follow it, things like that. And it's like, it doesn't need to be like perfectly linear, like how they use you or how they engage with you in the audience or the community or the marketplace you built from what you build for them. It just needs to be the same ICP in a yeah. enhanced value prop of how this can add, you know, tremendous value to them. I mean, the other thing with our model is because we could go in and sell them this B2B platform, we could sell them just for like a subdomain, like images.twitter.com or, right? And, and we could sell them for something light and then expand them. So it really was a land and expand model that, you know, the in, entry deal kind of didn't matter to us, right? And it yeah. was more about how many net new logos are we adopting per month at what ARR per customer. And then over time, you know, we ended up with seven figure accounts, but you know, the biggest deal the company ever won in one fell swoop was like a 200K ARR deal, right? So it's an That's interesting wow. okay. that I remind companies today, like it's not just about like selling the enterprise, it's about like, what is the repeatable sales motion? And yeah. you know, that's what you really need to define for your business to be successful. That's really interesting. I'm, I just made a note. I want to get back into that because I'm, I'm a huge land and expand guy. I think it makes a lot of sense because why, why sell this big giant deal when you can sell the smaller deal, nail expectations, over deliver, have everyone super happy, and then they just kind of pull you. And I would imagine that through, I'm curious to hear your thoughts, but like over the course of the actual big contract, the sales cycle is probably smaller to get that big giant contract because, you know, you're not having to essentially explain or make all these concessions to say, here's a million dollar deal. Let's do a, a 50, 200, 50 to 200K deal and then add another 50K and then add another 50K. And they're like, I love it. I love it. I love it. And it just keeps growing. Yeah. And I mean, so much of the sales cycle and enterprise is like the MSA negotiation, legal negotiation, compliance work, tech audits. When you get when you get in the procurement systems of these big companies, you're already there. So then it's about tech validation and actually like selling within budget bands that already exist, right? Mm -hmm. So like, I, again, I think it's really important that startups have like the clear consumption model of their platform that is like what kind of moves the price points up and down. But yeah. also what we did really well is we layered on like add-on and enhanced capabilities and services on top of that core consumption model, as well as complementary, you know, adjacent product lines. So yeah. that all of a sudden, like, that's really what gave you like the lift and the scale, not just do they have more traffic today than they had last quarter, right? Yeah. Or last year, but yeah. also like, what else can we sell them that gives them value and, and, you know. It's almost like a combo of deeper and wider at the same time. <laughs> yeah, I would say like, what's the, when you're doing pricing, like what's the commonality of your platform that determines a small client and a big client, that should be your consumption lever and what you build your base pricing around. But then it's like, what are the enhancements and add-ons for the more sophisticated user? Once we sold Pfizer, for example, 
at Dine, probably 2013, 14, when like like the bigger enterprise brands were like coming to us and going, hey, you're the de facto leader here in DNS. Like, can we work with you? Pfizer's account was like an $800 a month account based on traffic. I mean, not a lot of people go to Pfizer.com, right? But right. they wanted all these enhanced capabilities because the people who do go there are really important people, like like their like their investors and the public stock market and big analysts and the media and right and in, in the FDA, right? So literally, yeah. we were able to layer on a bunch of security measures and features and capabilities that ended up making it a five grand a month account. Kind of got yeah. into our into our sweet spot of a you know sixty seventy thousand dollar account per year. So so again, these are the types of things we didn't know yeah. that in two thousand eight. But you kind of grow and learn into that uh, yeah. moving forward. And, and you're spot on on land and expand. Man, if you can figure it out, it also obviously leads to how you structure your sales apparatus and organization. There's a lot yeah. of things in play, how you how you commission, how you, how you do pricing, different things. But it's really, I, I stress it every single day, all day. And I don't care if you're selling you know, Fortune 100s. If you can do that, it's, you're going to be a happy camper. The problem yeah. is... Get the growth equity investors, the private equity investors, the VCs in the mix on your board. I mean, I've sat in so many boardrooms now where it's like, how do you get an average deal size of half a million dollars a year? And it's like, you know, it's like, man, this isn't magic. You know, you got to you got to build up and grow into it. The only companies who can do that are in an established market where stuff's already super expensive and you have a fully functioned product that displaces it. But most yeah. of the time, that's not how a fast growth B2B SaaS startup yeah. gets the market. Yeah. So let let's start let's start when you come in and you have like you you mentioned Twitter you mentioned a couple of big names that you I I mean I, it makes a lot of sense from a strategic point of view and that's you know it, it's good to hear from, from from my point of view from everything that I'm doing is you get strategic you get surgical with it as far as you break down ICPs you break down industries you get you get very very targeted you broke it down by a handful of industries to say who's going to do what this is what we're going to say these are our messages this is our pain points these are our value props you didn't have any of it. How'd you get the first one? How'd you get the first couple? Like what, it, was it just like the pain was just that that strong and it resonated? Lot, well, like how did you really break it, through? A lot of it was honestly leveraging that community and that like kind of bottoms up brand. I mean, when the company was originally gonna go B2B, they literally had a different name and they even thought about having it be a different company. And I sort of pulled them back together and that's how, you know, Dynamic Network Services was the name of the company shortened for, I shortened it to Dyne many years later. Dyne DNS was the consumer website and Dynect Enterprise Class Technology, which it wasn't that. I, I made that up after. It was Dynect like Connect was a different website, right? So there was like Dynamic Network Services Incorporated. There was Dyne DNS. There was Dynect. There was different portals behind, right? I mean, again, think about this in modern SaaS, how like, convoluted and confusing that must have been to the outside world. So we, so we, first thing we do is we just collapsed all the brands and we said, you know, are you a consumer or home office or are you a business? Right? Like as simple as sense. that, right? But we had to do it all, right? I think the biggest thing we probably did to like streamline it is we, I call it the bag of tricks. It's kind of like, what are the assets, the collateral that you need in the stages of the sales process? to unlock and, and, and get over the hurdles to the next phase of the process. Clearly at the end of the process, it's like contra MSAs, contracts, you know, all that. All the way back though, it's like, they didn't even have like overview cut sheets or case studies, or, you know, reference like referenceable account lists or even a logo page on the website, right? Because the beauty we had is a little bit of a growth hack 
is we did have a bunch of brands who used the $30 a year free stuff. And, you know, that gave us sort of carte blanche in our, you know, finer print T's and C's through the click-through website to just sort of put their logos on the page, right? So we took a lot of creative freedoms and liberties. Occasionally we got slapped on the wrist, but that helped kind of cascade it. Obviously, in hindsight, I talk about winning Twitters and Netflixes and Amazons and all that. But the reality is, like, for every one of those, and by the way, Twitter wasn't Twitter of today then, right? I mean, for right. every yeah. one of those, you know, for every one of those, there was like, you know, 10, 15, 20 others that might have been known in the e-commerce sector or, you know, right, or in the retail sector, but weren't necessarily like giant clients. They didn't hit the trifecta of the of the logo, the pay. Like Breitling Watches, I remember, was a big client. Paid $30 a year. Great logo. No money for us and did not think of us as strategic. <laughs> but I still use their logo to sell the logo. next, you know, to sell Zappos and to sell Amazon, right? So right. at the end of the day, you can't scale on not lighthouses, anchors who are truly referenceable and everything else. But you can you can definitely create that like repeatable go-to-market motion bottoms up if you if you package and position it correctly. So yeah, so that when I was sense. telling my sales VP here the other day, like like literally overview cut sheet. You know, who's the company? What do we offer? Why is it valuable to you? Couple logos. Yeah. Next, next one after they say, yeah, I'm kind of interested. Send them this one by vertical. We had like five logos. You know what the company is, what the URL is, uh, what space they're in. You know what their business value is using dot. Right. Those are the two pieces of collateral we use every time, and they typically you get a call with a CTO or a CIO or a VP of tech or engineering, right? Because they yeah. say, oh, I got to hear why these guys think this is valuable. What what was the what was the go to market at the time? I mean, are you using just like an outbound? I mean, sales loft and outreach weren't around until. I mean, sales loft was in my TechStars class back in twenty twelve ish. Like, yesware was 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 something that I used when I was back then. Like, is it just manually like spreadsheets and go today I send an email and tomorrow I make a call? One thing I had to get the company out of because it was so engineering focused. They literally built everything right. So like. If, if you said like, what's the website run on? They would, it would be like a custom Drupal site that they built. If you yeah. said, you know, what's the CRM? They said, oh, we use open source sugar CRM and we rebuilt it to our needs. And you're like, ah, right. So yeah, we ended up moving sugar to Salesforce back then. We ended up moving yeah. the website to, to, I think we were, went to a, at the time, a, like a more hosted version of Drupal, like an Acquia or someone who could like actually manage the infrastructure. Cause that was their specialty. Yeah. But honestly, it was mostly, you know, we would, we would do things like we would like, like do DNS lookups. <laughs> so we'd look up like who does, you know, Netflix use and it was, oh, yeah. they use themselves and they use, you know, GoDaddy. And so when we call them, we, we really just use Alexa rankings actually. We did Alexa rankings, top thousand companies. We segmented them. We did all of our own list building that way. But yeah. then we also married it with knowing when we got on the phone with them who they use for our technology because it's publicly look upable. And then literally we just we just hammered. It was all it was it was it was two sided. It was build a big brand, leverage the community, and then outbound, 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 outbound. Yeah. Right. So I don't think it was till like later in like our where that inverted, where like inbound leads would show up at the scale and we were super analytical. We were really good really early at, uh, you know, today I call it like sing uh, a singular GTM funnel. Like I feel like too many companies have like their marketing funnel, then they have their sales funnel, and then they have their like expansion funnel. And it's like, or customer success metrics. Like I believe in like one unified funnel. Like where's all the activity you do at the top, inbound, outbound, 
where's the inbound leads come from? How do you convert them from MQL to SAL to QSO? You know, then get into that funnel, like, but not like these totally separate funnels, right? I feel yeah. like that's the problem. And as, as CRO, when I, you know, was CRO for the majority of the run, you know, I had sales, marketing, CS, partnerships, corporate. So you could bring them all together. Right. I was really operating as kind of like a president of or field president of all the outside game. Yeah. It enabled me to sort of have ultimate accountability. Like it's not like marketing could say sales isn't closing deals or sales could say I'm getting crap leads. Right. Like it was really kind of integrated. And we ended up actually flip flopping BDR, SDR. We, you know, some we put them in marketing for a while and called them LDRs. They were qualifiers. You know, it was always a hot potato item for us all the way back then. But you're spot on. Like, yeah. we might have ended up getting into, like, Insight Squared and Yesware and uh, Marketo and, like, like different platforms as we matured. But the early years were, like, just straight up grind hustle. Like, they were yeah. not, and, and, you know, and, and just, like, outcome-based metrics, yeah. right? And not activity-based metrics, like, really outcome-based. Yeah. No, that makes sense. I mean, one thing one thing that I, I do want to point out for the audience that, that you kind of snuck in there and it's really, really important is the amount of time that you and your team spent on creating these lists, like strategic list building and figuring out why do they go in this list versus that list, the messages behind it, the reasons why they should care when we reach out to them, like giving them to specific people and say, attack this list like it is your life. Like those types of things are just so are just so underutilized today. I feel like it's like, oh, I go to Zoom Info, I got this list, I pull this title, I hit, you know, I hit send on this like 12 step cadence and I don't get any leads. I don't know what the hell is wrong. And it's like. I'm so transactional and so unhuman. I remember we had a BDR, Ryan O'Hara, a really good guy, runs a new startup called Request, Request for Meeting today. Ryan was a BDR at a university in New Hampshire. We hired him. And he comes to me one day and he's like, I'm not getting any replies to my outreach to our list. And so I said, let me see your email. And his email was literally, he used the template that we wrote and added no personality, no, you know, nothing, no, no context, no, like nothing about the weather, nothing about the sports teams in their area, nothing about how he once went to Chicago to visit, like just zero personality. And this kid was, he, to this day, oozes personality. So one slight shift in like, be yourself, man. Like you represent our brand. I don't, I hate when I see like on social media, like my views are my own. I don't represent those of my company. It's like, it's such crap. Like, like empower your people to be themselves and open those doors. So I think it's, it's getting outside of the transactional to your point, being super strategic, but also yeah. enabling your people to do it their way. And there's no like perfect way to act. Yeah. I also think like what's sort of lost is, is like, the, the consistency thing, right? Like, like you have to consistently get in front. Like, just because you might get a no or a push, it doesn't mean it's a closed loss, move on all the time, right? So, you know, in the early days of startup building, you have to like have thick skin and get used to no, understand no quickly if it's a true no, but also like be, be patient. And then lastly, like treat everyone like a strategic account in the early days. Like I can remember so many times you know, we'd be working someone like, why are you spending time as CRO on that account? I'm like, because I don't know, I really like their technology. I love what they're doing. Guess what? They become Zendesk. <laughs> they become Shopify, right? Yeah. And you just never really know. Also, a lot of times, like, I remember one guy, Mark Briaco, he's at Epic Games now. He runs engineering there. But he, he career popped a bunch in those eight years I was there. Went to three, four companies. Took us into Living Social. Took us into Heroku. Took us into several other accounts. And it was one of our best info sources for other accounts in his, in his tech 
you know, network, right? So treating everybody as important is tricky, but like, you know, it's hard to scale. But like, I think if you can do that a lot in the early days, you develop a lot of personal touch and relationship and fanfare. No, that's interesting. That's it's one of my favorite parts of uh, Sales Navigator is to identify who are your customers and then watch them hop from place to place to place and see, you know, who you've done. It just shrinks the entire sales cycle. Anybody that you've ever known that's like, oh, Kyle's a good guy. I've used the product. It totally works. It saves my butt. Well, I'm going to go do something else. Like, what? Why wouldn't I just go? I want the same setup again. So that's why people bring in Salesforce. They bring in, totally. you know, their various their, their tools, right? The things that they know. Who are your service providers? Both from a kind of service consulting all the way down through right training, all the way down yeah. through tech stack. Yeah. yeah, no, you're spot on. I also think the other thing happens, which is there's a lot of consolidation in this space. You don't always see it just by seeing the TechCrunch headlines or whatever. But right. there's an unbelievable amount of consolidation. So all of a sudden, like like when we got into Facebook, you know, it's because we were working with a bunch of their acquisitions first, right? Same with Oracle. Like we worked with you know a bunch of different future data data, there was a bunch of different players that they acquired that were clients and all of a sudden you're in, now you have to go through the, the integration there and then you become a vendor, right? So it almost sounds like, it almost sounds like your, your strategy was a little bit of like, not necessarily go to the enterprise, but go to the ones that you know that you can help right away. And obviously there's the, you know, the smaller land deals, but you kind of go to the enterprise as your, as kind of your customers take you there. So to your point, like go hit the Zenefits or go hit the, you know, the smaller companies that all of a sudden. A restaurant, you know, t-shirt, but we are big believers in look and feel and act just like the buyer, right? Like yeah. a, a CTO is wearing a t-shirt and jeans at a conference, right? And wants to drink a few beers, right? Like, and that's their social scene, right? Like, like so be where they are. If we rolled in, like our competitors at the time, full suits, you know, briefcases, coming in eight deep, being intimidating, you know, like trying to be all polished, we had no chance, right? So what we really did, we outbounded everyone you just said, right? Like the like-minded types of companies, the companies that we wanted to have affinity with and people to put us in the bucket that we look like them. We look like Twilio, we look like Zendesk, we look like Gainsight, we look like HubSpot, like be in their social spheres, right? Be at conferences, hang out with those leaders, we host, used to host a huge South by Southwest party, right? For example, back then when like it was huge in tech, right? Well, we'd invite indie bands and we'd say indie bands are like us. We're renegades, we're disruptors, we're trying to climb the mountaintop, right? We did a lot of that. What that led to was inbound of the enterprise because the enterprise, I'll give you a great one. JP Morgan, it was a prospect of dying back in like 2012. We went into a day, we went into a pitch down. We had to go meet them at their bank one headquarters in Columbus, Ohio. We go in three or four of us, super cash, walk in the door. When we walked in the hallway, all the vendors were lined up. They were just meeting with all the different competitive players in our space in one day. And there was two or three public companies and us. And I remember walking into the room at the end of the meeting, they said, so can you, we asked everybody else to send us all their banking customers and all their banking references. I said, oh, man, this is going to be difficult because, like, you know, we work with, like, the Fort Worth Credit Union and the Bangor Main Savings. And like, we didn't have banking clients, right? We worked with the best of the best on the Internet. And so I challenged them. I said, I have a question for you. Would you rather look more like Facebook and Twitter and Netflix or operate like all these dinosaur banks when it comes to their tech stack, right? Now, we also had Square. We had Seeking Alpha, we had PayPal, we had modern 
contemporaries, but we didn't have Wells Fargo and Bank of America and all the other right. majors, right? Like the our competitors did. And, you know, we ended up winning that deal just to, to give you the, 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 the mic drop. But, you know, it's kind of like we had to approach it from a different angle and not try to be something we're not. I feel like too many startups um, don't have that, like, authentic kind of brand disposition yeah. and confidence to, to, to attack the market that way. And that's that's really interesting. I mean, it, I, I, w- I can imagine. I mean, I've been in those those rooms where at, you're at you're at an enterprise level. There's a it's a, you know it's a big boardroom and it has this beautiful view. The the, the furniture is probably worth more than my house type of stuff. And you walk in and they're they're asking you a lot of questions and it's a, it's very intimidating. And they you know you're going to get some of these questions where especially your competitors are just completely different than you. It takes a lot of guts to be able to answer these questions or turn around and ask these questions back to go. Well, do you want to be like these dinosaurs or do you want to be like these people over here? And it's also kind of a good idea to say, hey, do you want the deal? Is this really qualified? Maybe we have to come at it from a different angle. But that's where you kind of shoot your shot and say, hey, we got to be differentiated because if we're going to try to be the same, we're going to get crushed because they've been doing, you know, all of our competitors have been doing this forever. Yeah, I mean, I'm a firm believer in like um, the icebreaker, right? So like, like, how do you open the door and become relatable? It's the context we were talking about a minute ago in the beginning of a sales pitch. When we went to that headquarters in Columbus, they had a social media command center that was like, I mean, this thing must have been a $25 million command center. You know, tickers over the top, you know, 50 people in a room at computers, literally responding to people's complaints about Chase apps, you know, right? And literally, you can see it, like the apps down in Georgia, like, I mean, I'm on the road and my credit card's not working. Like, literally, like, I'm trying to log into the website and the live chat's broken. Like, literally, like, this is all you'd read. And so I just walked by it with my team and I put it in my, in my brain. When we finally got our seat in the room, I said, so one thing I'm a little bit confused by, if you don't mind me setting the table here, is why are you investing so much damn money in how you respond to crisis instead of just fixing your website and app performance? I'm like, I'm like, literally these services, you know, our proposal at the time in front of them was a quarter of a million dollars a year. Now it expanded again, as yeah. we talked about earlier, but it was a quarter of a million dollars a year to ensure speed, reliability, security, performance of their applications and their end user experience, yeah. right? So right away, they were like, that's a good point. We hadn't thought about it that way. We were coming at it from how do we have a better customer service organization. We weren't coming from it. How do we have an end-to-end customer experience and brand you know, affinity that is, yeah. is required in this day and age, right? So, so yeah, it's about having like pithy points of view. It's about putting, putting yourself in the prospect's shoes and understanding their roles and experience. And it doesn't matter what you're selling, right? Or where it lives in the tech stack or service stack. It's like, how do you help them be more successful? And, it, and if, if that leverages you, wonderful. If it doesn't, you're right. You have to know when to say no, move on and come back yeah. around another time. No, it's interesting because the, the, the icebreaker, just the overall kind of making them think a little bit differently is so crucial. And I and I see so many reps, VPs of sales companies in general, just trying to like, what what's the right playbook? What's the playbook that is that I'm supposed to follow in order to in order to be successful? And the actual answer is, is do shit differently, right? right do right. it a little bit differently because if you do it exactly the same, you just look like a carbon copy of everybody else that just spoke. And so to your point, where it's like, hey, I'm going to challenge them with a question that's going to go, oh, I didn't think about that. 
that's, I mean, that in and of itself, those, that one question is so, so powerful. One of the things that I see a lot is people see symptoms, right? They, they try to solve these symptoms. And so to your point, it sounds like they almost trying to solve this one symptom. And what you said is, well, why don't you actually fix the problem? And that symptom right. will actually go away too and think about it differently. And it literally goes, we got to work with these guys. Well, it's a natural thing too for like a seller to talk about the company and their product and themselves, right? And not necessarily do this sort of out of body where you like put yourself in their shoes and then say how you can help them, yeah. right? Like, like that, that I struggle with this even to this day as I build my firm, right? Because it's like, like I want to talk about all the successes of my firm and how many customers and how many employees and how we're scaling and how we're innovating and how we, we invest this much of capital and blah, 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 blah. But at the end of the day, like, why does that actually matter to the tech startups we work with? They don't care. Like, they don't care. Like, that's great. That's validators. Those are things that make us legit and, like, may maybe gives them some wanting to want to work with us. But if you make it more about them, how we're, it's valuable to them, how, how others like them are benefiting from the capabilities, then it starts to become – you kind of grease it, right? And you can get through these uh, processes faster, whether yeah. that's big enterprise or whether that's working with startups. Yeah, that makes sense. Let's talk a little bit about org structure of the team. Like you, you had these, you had two guys in the in the early days. Yep. Walk us through a little bit as far as like what what did the growth look like? Because you had initially just two salespeople. We've 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 mentioned rev ops. We've mentioned demand gen, marketing, SDRs. Like what was kind of the growth as far as trying to figure out who to hire and when, and then starting to move the pieces around. Yeah, like right away, we because our solution was super technical, we added an SC. So we had a sales engineer. I mean, you have to if you have a very, very technical solution. I remember they were so mad that our sales reps couldn't demo the platform. I'm like, I mean, I, I don't even think I had a login for eight years. When like, like, <laughs> you don't want me demoing. <laughs> right? It's not like you're demoing like a CRM or like right. a marketing automation platform. Like it was literally like, you know, behind the scenes code like stuff, right? Um, so, so we, what we did right away is we, we focused the two sales reps. One was a strategic rep, one was an inside rep. So we put the strategic rep on names, named accounts, enterprise accounts, a couple key verticals. He also worked on that strategic rep, Ryan also worked like, you know, partnerships who were kind of customers, like so other hosting companies, other content delivery networks, internet service providers who could end up being a customer, but also they have customers, right? So yeah. We put all the strategic stuff with Brian and it was a cross between BD and sort of enterprise strategic selling. And then under Chris, we gave him all the inside sales stuff, right? I mean, he had literally, he was really, really, really amazing at high volume outbound, hammering people through a process, trying to shrink sales cycles. And that's literally how we then oriented and scaled the teams around them. We created an inside team with Chris that went after everyone else. We had the named accounts and strategic partners with alongside Brian. We created the SE structure. We added the BDR structure. And that was really the beginnings of the, of the, of the apparatus. We ended up scaling the business predominantly on the inside sales motion. So BDR as a farm system to a junior AE to senior AE. Senior AEs many times in our business just came from inside sales and graduated to strategic sales, right? So that ended up even at scale at 100 million, that team might've been eight to 12 people, the strategic team, but the inside team had grown to 40, 50, 60 people, right? Interesting. Obviously as it grew, we started to add, you know, back then it wasn't all called rev ops, you know, we had sales ops. Right. We, we also, because I ran success, it was success, support, SE were one org, you know, outbound sales, 
we we operate a lot with like we we didn't we didn't do AEAM till way later. It was a hybrid because again the land of expand model for us was so rapid that it was like well, that's unfair. A guy wins a deal, we're telling him just everybody to win else gets all the money. Yeah. So at scale, obviously, we ended up with thousands of accounts. We structured gotcha. a little differently and all that. And then also it was the same thing in marketing, right? It was like, okay, we're ready for a digital marketer to run website and UI, UX. Okay, now we're ready for demand gen. I think we did call it demand gen. We might have merged like digital and demand gen back then as titles. Um, mm -hmm. We need content. We need PR and AR and comms, right? And you, so you start to build out. We need big thing for us was events, right? So outbound, outbound was outbound at events, but to drive inbound activity, right? It was like in our world and infrastructure, there was very, very clear events. And also because we had the vertical strategy, we could go to the e-com shows and the SaaS shows and the, right? And the ad tech shows and be a vendor that could help them and, and fit in. So that's how the structure really evolved. I will tell you, Alex, I mean, <laughs> there was times we overhired in one area and had to, you know, naturally, we never had to do riffs or anything, but we naturally let people kind of move on. You know, we, we different years along our journey, like I can look year by year by year in hindsight backwards and say, here's the core engine. We always focus on the core engine that scales the business. We need this many logos per month and quarter at this ARR value, but we always did a really good job in our model. And I recommend this to startups today to have, it's like an 80, 20 rule. Where's the 20 to break the model for the better. Like what are the bets you're going to make? Like yeah. this year, we're going to launch a new product this year. We're going to launch in Europe. This year, we're going to evolve our pricing and packaging. This year, we're going to do an acquisition. This year, we're going to add a new service tier, right? Like, I can look back now and tell you the things we did every year outside of the core engine and, and executing on the boring stuff over and over and over again. What did we do to really sustain growth? And a lot of times, it was freeing us up to have those bets. Yeah. Well, we're going we're gonna to have to have you on again because we'll have to dig into all those little details as far as, as scale. It's, it's, and, and I know we got a couple of minutes left here. When you when you look back, what what would you say are like the one to two things that you you would do differently that would be like kind of game changing, impactful if you could take back or, or do or just change the way you did it? Well, I think I'll give you one personal and one like company. So personally, I was really young doing this, right? I mean, I just turned forty last November. You know, we sold our company. I was thirty three, so the run for me was like twenty six to thirty three. I ended up staying at Oracle for three years after we sold the company too, before I started York IE. But I was really young and like I, I, I was always trying to do things to protect my role as CRO, right? I didn't want the board or the investors who came in to say, this guy's too young, he's never done it, we need experience around him. So I would always hire more experienced people at the next layer down from me. But I don't think along the way, I was transparent enough with the board, with other key executives, with the investors to let them know I was actually doing that, right? It was like, I was self-aware enough. That's why I was doing it. I was actually being defensive and I wasn't yeah. being turfy, I was, right? I think it, so, so what ended up happening is in the later stages of the company, they're like, we need the IPO ready head of sales and we need to break apart sales marketing and CS and, hey, CEO, how come you're not more engaged and responsible for that, even though the model and the apparatus worked all these years? So a lot of that was more personal reflection of like, you know, I should have been going to them more as mentors and collaborators and not like the bad people. Now, again, they were heavy handed too. So, you know, it is what it is, uh, but you know, that's one personal learning uh, and yeah. reflection. Along the way. That's a good one. I think secondly, more on the business, you know, we, 
we had such a good thing going from the standpoint of how fast it was going. I mean, we basically were going so fast and then we sort of hit a scale like stability issue where it was like, we either need to sell this thing or like, you know, we weren't like, we could have IPO'd or sold and we had to kind of sell. Or we're gonna have to like recommit for three to five years to diversify product. Because what happened along the way is all the major clouds, the Googles, the Amazons, the Microsoft Azure started to launch competitive services. And there were like one service that we offered of their like entire like 150 SKU platforms. And they weren't as good for a while, right? They really weren't. But then they kind of started to catch up and they were also one-tenth the price, right? And I think we should have evolved the sort of value prop and the platform, you know, probably more of a cybersecurity play, maybe done a couple more strategic acquisitions, raised a little bit of money earlier on than we did. And I think that would have been a huge driver. What's weird for me is like, even though I ran go to market, so much of my brain was always just thinking, how do I grow this thing, right? It was less specific to the operational transactional efforts of the business. I had a really good team to focus on those areas. And I was always trying to think of like, how do we sustain this? How do we keep building it? And truly to me, that's a true CEO, CRO, like that's the type of yeah. mentality you need to have. But yeah, I mean, those are just a couple of the big macro things, but like, yeah. you know, man, there's, I mean, so many learnings. This is not smooth ride. I mean, yeah. There were times I was laying, I've told this story before, I was laying on MRI beds thinking I had brain tumors because I was so stressed and having migraines. Like these are the, this is the world we live. Like, especially right now, by the way, startups are like super volatile in the trenches, but now you've got all of these banking issues and post pandemic issues and, you know, public tech market issues. And like these cascade and filter down to private companies and it's hard. Right. So stay in the course, you know, focusing on your mental health, those types of things are really critical to more, more now than ever before. I know that when I was a direct seller, I, it never even crossed my mind. Everyone was just rub some dirt on it or I go take a vacation or take a Friday off. Like it never was like a thing. And so now it's, it's great to see that it's, it's much more aware and, and proactive. When you, when you look back, is there, is there something that you can point to, or maybe a couple of things that you can point to that are like, I knew this was working. Like what were the, everybody talks about outcomes and performance, which are all like lit lagging indicators. Like what were the things that you were doing or, or people that you hired that you were like, this is working. Like, let's just dump money on this thing or let's invest in this thing. Inside sales motion, man. It was that bottoms up inside sales motion. Like we could hire people who knew nothing about DNS, train them on the value props, the key drivers and tell them to go sell their favorite websites. Right? Like, That's and they cool. were just like, man, this is so cool. Right? So you'd find people who would like, Find little pockets of like, oh, I love, we hired this guy, Jeff Mayer, for example. Jeff Mayer in the 90s was the dude who like reached over in the World Series or the NL ALCS between the Orioles and the Yankees and like robbed a home run. And in Chicago, it was Bartman who did this. Yeah, it was, yeah. It was Jeff Mayer in, in, in New York who did this. Jeff came in as a seller. He didn't have a ton of tech experience. I was like, he's like, how do I get going? I'm like, we'll learn what we do, how we do it, why it's valuable. Yeah. And then call everybody in sports. So he, he, you know, he went in one ESPN, he went in one MLB, right? Like, like he went out and did his thing yeah. and didn't hide from his interests and experience and background where historically he was like, oh, and I also told him, go sell, go sell people in, you know, New York. Yeah. <laughs> right? but, you know, so anyway, so I think there's a reality where we found this model where we could hire someone who had good sales pedigree and DNA. Yeah. Young, train them on what we do, how we do it, surround them with unbelievable experts and resources and do that over and over and over again. And they didn't even need to know what the DNS stood for when we hired them in their first interview, right? right. Uh, so that was a really rare moment in time where, you know, maybe now I would have gone harder at that actually, right? right? Because it's like, 
man, like, like we could literally hire a BDR. They could be a BDR for 12 months, go become an AE and go. And because we were winning so many small deals and landing expanding, what we would do, and we'd hire a new rep a year in, we'd get rid of a bunch of the small deals and give them to a new rep and say, hey, call a bunch of these small deals, see what they're up to, see if they're expanding at all, talk to them about our new product lines. And, and the, the, the reps who had been there and, and were tenured wouldn't care because that was a lot of mice nuts and noise to them, right? right. And they'd, they had already graduated. So that just worked for a while. I think if the big clouds didn't come into the space, Dime would be an independent franchise, be an IPO, ready company back then. But obviously it was a tremendous outcome to, to get in the hands of Oracle. That and, makes uh, sense. It's an awesome story. That that is that is an awesome story. I feel like I could I could talk to you forever. I want to I want to dig into onboarding and training and and all these different things, especially with like how the team has grown. We'll have to have you back on. Sounds good, man. We are out of time. I want to make sure that we wrap up. I like to ask all my guests one question to share with the audience. What's your favorite book or resource that you recommend as far as an entrepreneur or a seller, go to market leader, take a look at? So this is an old classic. I don't know the original, like, I, I, I should look like what the original date of this printing was, 37. And wow. it's one book I read when I like started to see on paper that my equity in Dine was worth something. Yeah. And I, you know, I didn't come from a lot of money. And I was like, you know, trying to like think about how to like, you know, how do the world's elite, you know, live and not in the celebrity social media culture where like, it's hard to know, but like, like in like, you know, Carnegie and Rockefeller and Vanderbilt and Henry Ford, right? Like, and so this is just an old classic that, you know, I have on my, on my coffee table here that Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill, that is just an unbelievable book stood the test of time. And wow. you know, again, and out, without all the gaze, I think also in our startup culture right now, it's all about like, building healthy, sustainable businesses. Like we're seeing a, a pullback to pragmatism. You saw me on Bloomberg the other day. Yeah. Like, it's a good thing. Like these are like build a good, healthy company. You know, we've been running companies for years in technology, especially that are burning you know, millions a month or tens of millions a month or, you know, hundreds of millions a year, you know, if not more in the giant public tech companies. Like I think like good companies are companies that like, you know, run break even or make a profit or can be sustainable right. over time. And that's a lot of what obviously these, the book teaches and its lessons. That's awesome. Kyle, this is awesome. How does, how does the audience get more of you? Website, yeah, sure, Twitter, LinkedIn, what, what, what's the best way to learn more from you? So I run a firm now, it's a strategic growth and investment firm called York IE or a hundred people. Think of us as a modern Bain, you know, we're working with startups on, advisory on growth, product development, financials, revenue operations. We have loads of different areas to help companies. And then we also invest in pre-seed, seed stage B2B SaaS. So that website is york.ie. You can find us across all social channels at York Growth. And I'm also KYORK20, my, my whole football number and you know, homage to Barry Sanders, the best running back of all time, KYORK20, which was my AIM screen name in the 90s, which I've <laughs> held across all social media to this day. So you can find you can find us everywhere and we'd love to engage and if we can help your startup, we'd love to. Awesome. And we'll, we'll link all that stuff in the show notes. Kyle, you're awesome. We're going to have to have you on again. This is There's not enough time to get into everything that you can share with us and all your learnings. Thank you so much for having you on and we'll, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. See ya. That's it for this week's episode of From Start to Scale. Be sure to click that subscribe button and follow us so you don't miss our next episode. I'm Alex Newman. See you next time.